Welcome. If you're a woman who has a sense that there's more out there for you, you're in the right place. I'm Whitney Baker, host of the Electric Ideas podcast. Somewhere along the line of working kids, life carried on, but I lost track of my truth. I'm on a reflective journey, and that's what this podcast is all about. Each week, I interview a woman who is lighting her own path and offering others hope. Before our conversation ends, we'll share a reflective question for you to explore. Sometimes all we need is a jolt, a fresh idea, an aha moment that connects us to a sense of possibility. This, my friends, is what I call an electric idea. Welcome back to Electric Ideas. I'm your host, Whitney Baker. I wanted to take a minute this morning to let you know that I had an opportunity to heed my own teaching. So as you'll hear, there's some background noise in this conversation, and sometimes there's just nothing that we can do about it. But guess what? That's okay, because I'm not going to let it get in the way of sharing out this absolutely wonderful conversation that's in store for today. If there's one thing I've learned on this entire journey of launching Electric Ideas, a podcast, launching my business, is that if you get too hooked on things being perfect, you spend way more time than you need to on them. And it just leads to frustration and burnout. When on the other hand, people don't really care that much. So I'm letting myself be perfectly imperfect today and share this wonderful episode. I know you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, let me tell you about what's on deck for today. So my guest today is Dr. Patricia Musum, a pioneer in the synthesis of science, holistic health, and contemporary spirituality. Today, we are talking about her new book called Beyond Medicine, a physician's revolutionary prescription for achieving absolute health and inner peace. Dr. Musum is an advocate for whole person approach to health and well-being. She shares all kinds of tools and resources in this conversation that I know you'll value. So let's get into it. Hello, Dr. Musum. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Whitney. I'm truly honored to be a guest on your show. Thank you for having me. Of course. And you, so let's start here. You have a medical degree and you've outlined in your book an impressive journey incorporating a lot of holistic practices to heal both yourself and help heal your patients. And a lot of these practices lean on ancient wisdom traditions and contemporary spiritual practices. So I am fascinated by your unique vantage point of having both the Western perspective and perspective from these other practices. Can you start by in broad strokes, just giving us a sense of where right now you think Western medicine is limiting us and how we heal? Yes, <laughs> that's a big question. I'll try to try to be brief as I can. Western medicine focuses on the symptom or what appears to be the diagnosis, as opposed to the individual who has the symptom or the apparent diagnosis. Western medicine treats that symptom or that diagnosis, not the individual who has that apparent symptom or diagnosis. And I say apparent because Western medicine has a whole nomenclature and a context for determining what disease is according to a constellation of symptoms. So somebody that has a certain constellation of symptoms is described as having a certain type of disease. And anybody with that constellation of symptoms is described as having that disease. And we treat that disease, not the person. Again, 
we typically tend to suppress symptoms in Western medicine. Now, this is not necessarily a bad thing. If I'm having excruciating pain or having an acute emergent situation, sometimes it's really necessary to suppress symptoms. However, several ways Western medicine does miss out on what you asked about actually healing. Healing is different than suppressing symptoms. Healing is a complete transformation from being unwell to being well, a complete transformation of symptoms or quote, apparent disease to complete healing of that symptom or disease. And one of the elements that Western medicine neglects is the whole person aspect of healing. In fact, it's kind of ironic that one of the founding fathers of Western medicine, Hippocrates, said it is more important to cheat the person that has the disease than the disease that person has. So who that person is in the world, that person's life, that person's lifestyle, that person's mind, that person's emotions, that person's circumstances, all of these factors are incredibly relevant, not just incredibly relevant. They actually set, if you will, the hard drive, the hardware for what's going to manifest in that person. So our thoughts, our emotions, our lifestyle, what we take in in terms of food, our relationships, our community, if we're connected to a reason for living, a purpose, all these aspects that make us unique are neglected in Western medicine. And it's these aspects that are absolutely integral to healing. Thank you for taking the time to introduce that because it's a, it, it is a big question, but there's a lot to unpack within the topics that came up in your answer. So your new book, I want to make sure we mention the title. It's called Beyond Medicine, a physician's revolutionary prescription for achieving absolute health and finding inner peace. And I found this book to be just a treasure trove of information and practices in for inviting what you describe as absolute health. And you mentioned it a little bit, but can you just confirm again how you would define absolute health from your perspective? Sure, sure. I've coined the term absolute health in my book and in the title, as you just described, to mean simply peace of mind, inner peace, equanimity. And why it's essential is that in order for us to heal, we need to be in that place of peace of mind, of inner peace, of equanimity. The body will not heal otherwise. And I'm talking about healing now, again, as opposed to suppressing or limiting symptoms, which again, as I said, Western medicine is sometimes really necessary for. But if we are not in a state of peace mentally and emotionally, the body is absolutely incapable of healing. It absolutely interferes with healing the state of our mind, the state of our consciousness, if we're not in a place of rest and calm. Yes. Let's talk about that more. A passage that actually dovetails perfectly because a passage I wanted to share for your book, it starts like this. Emotional healing was my way there. Learning how to feel feelings. As I experienced viscerally, the connection between my thoughts, my feelings, and my physical body and I learned to be present in the moment, I found my path home to ease from dis-ease. Inviting it all in, allowing it all in, was the beginning of my healing. So tell me more about the link between our emotions and our physical bodies. The 
link between our emotions and our physical bodies is instantaneous. It's ineffable. It is omnipotent. There's an absolutely no separation between our psyche and our soma. Every thought we are experiencing, every emotion we are feeling is either supporting our health. In other words, it's in a place of ease or it's interfering with our health, with our physical health. And even to say it's interfering with our physical health is a little bit of a contradiction because they're absolutely linked instantaneously. So we can't really separate them. Again, that's something that Western medicine hasn't accommodated in its modern worldview. It was very much part and parcel of the ancient Western founding forefathers. But in Western medicine, we have a typically a psychiatrist or a psychologist that is there for the realm of issues of the psyche. So if you were somebody who, let's say you saw a patient who had consistent, because I think chronic pain is something that we're seeing a lot more. Maybe you have some science or statistics on that. But if you had a patient who had some sort of chronic pain and maybe it was coming and going or just been going on for a long time and they'd been to a Western doctor and hadn't quite been able to pinpoint what was going on, what type of advice, where would you start with that person? Well, that's a big question. And the first thing I need to say is two people or three people with the same exact chronic pain, I would work with absolutely differently, uniquely. And I do a number of, use a number of diagnostic tools and I have quite a few therapeutic approaches. First, we look at the body, we look at the psyche, we look at everything, everything is connected. So in my book, I discuss our four primary medicines. Food is medicine lifestyle is medicine, relationships and community is medicine, and purpose is medicine. And I look at all of those elements for that individual. Now, there are certain foods that can be aggravating pain in some people's constitution. I do what's called constitutional nutrition. I don't treat the symptom or the disease. I figure out the person's unique constitution. And for some people, for example, if they're eating a lot of raw food, that can aggravate a pain syndrome how we're going about our day, lifestyle is medicine. If we're going nonstop without taking break and resting for the mind and for the body, that will aggravate everything and anything that's going on in the body, whether it's the pain syndrome or something else. So if somebody's lifestyle, that's a big factor and that's a very powerful prescription, more important than even a physician's pharmaceuticals. And then how we're relating in our life, relationships and community, are our relationships supporting us or not? Are we creating stress or ease in that aspect of our lives? And again, this is returning back to the notion of peace of mind as being a place we need to be for healing to happen. And then finally, purpose is medicine. Are we happy in our lives? Are we living what we feel we're here for? Whether we are, whether we are not is another prescription for, for healing. But getting back to the issue of pain in particular, the mind, the emotions, the pain are absolutely 100% linked. And we now have neuroscience that speaks to this. If we're feeling stressed out, if we're feeling aggravated, if we're feeling anxious, we're going to have worsening pain syndrome. That's absolutely obvious. But what is new to us in terms of the neuroscience of it all is that what's called chronic pain, which is what we call acute pain once it's been present for at least six weeks or more, what's called chronic pain doesn't activate the active pain centers in the brain. In fact, it activates the emotional centers. 
So we can have chronic pain that can be elicited, not by what we may think is the cause of that pain, say an old shoulder injury or new injury. It can be aggravated by the emotions coming up around it, or even the memories of the emotions coming up around it. Pain signals that come from that part of our body that's feeling the pain, that are traveling to the brain, that are telling us we're in pain, travel literally along the same neural pathways as the emotion signals. So emotions and pain signals are linked along the same highways of neurofibers. So they're very much intertwined. So we can't really experience pain without having an emotion around it. And if we have an emotion, it's going to be affecting the pain. And then again, I can have an old shoulder injury. And I may think that that pain that I have every now and then is from that shoulder injury, but it may very well not be related to the injury at all. It may be the emotions that are coming up around the injury, the memories of the injury, or present current emotions. If I'm having stress in any way, if I'm feeling angry or irritable in any way, those can actually turn on those pain sensory signals in the brain because they're toggled on by the emotional centers. So this is a this this is a more poetic way to look at it. In many cases the cure for the pain is in the pain. In other words, the emotional pain around the experience. I do want to say though if somebody's having physical pain not to neglect it, not to dismiss the necessity of addressing a diagnosis in this case and using western medicine if necessary. There is a place for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that the newest research and thinking I find completely fascinating. I just want to, I, I think that's going to be new for some listeners. So I want to just reiterate a little bit and go a step deeper. So when we have emotions that we don't feel through and they get suppressed, how does that impact our body? That's a great question. And the quote that you read before the prior question speaks to that. And I'm actually my own personal experience about that too. I I write throughout the book of my various experiences with various health issues and challenges emotionally as well. And for many, many years, I didn't know how to feel feelings. I found all sorts of ways not to deal with feelings. I wasn't even aware that I had feelings that I wasn't dealing with. When we suppress feelings, they literally become energetically held in the body and they become foci for dis-ease, emotional dis-ease, and physical disease. Every physical disease has an emotional component. If we want to heal that physical disease, and I should say every physical symptom or disease has an emotional component. And if we want to truly heal that disease or symptom, as opposed to merely suppressing, we need to address the emotional link or links and shift those. One of the interesting pieces of this that came up for me when I was enjoying your book was how some of the things you were doing seemed like, I think exercising is the the example that really stuck out is that seems like who would say not to exercise, but in some ways it was became an avoidance tactic is how I would put it in layman's terms for feeling your feelings. Tell us how sometimes things that seem like they could be healthy habits can actually be preventing us from, from digesting emotions. Yeah. Just another personal share. I, um, I love to move my concentration, my constitution likes movement. So 
I became fairly addicted to various forms of exercise. And I realized in retrospect and after injuries and bodily other bodily issues that I was literally running, jumping, moving to avoid being still and feeling feelings, being present with feelings. And we do assume exercise is a healthy habit. You know, the powers that be in terms of the health industry, the wellness industry, and even the Western medical community suggests we should exercise for a certain amount of time a day and for a certain number of days a week. But it's actually simply not true. And in the book, I refer to exercise not as exercise, but as minding the body. And again, it's returning to a prior theme of the book, and I'm getting a little off from your question, but I'm going to try to come back to it as I wind around. A key theme of the book is the notion of simply being present with what is, being in the moment. This is aka Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now. By the way, my my wonderful publisher published his book too, so that was an exciting um, honor for me. It's simply about being present, slowing down our thinking brains. And in our culture these days, it's very, very challenging for many of us to do that. Slowing down, to be still, to be present with what we're experiencing moment to moment. And in my case, as I was sharing, I loved to move and my movement was a way of avoiding feelings. I didn't know how to sit and be still with what I was feeling, let alone be still enough to discover there were feelings there that I wasn't even aware of. So exercise can be a way of avoiding, of suppressing. It can also be a way of of aggravating illness and symptoms. I talk about minding the body and exercise, movement, whatever we're doing to mind our bodies as needing to be congruent with what our unique bodily needs are. And again, I refer to something I referred to earlier about constitution. Each and every one of us has a unique constitution and some constitutions need to move more. Some constitutions need more, more slow, gentle exercise. And this notion of jumping up and down on machines or running or doing intense weight kind of exercises are not necessarily beneficial for every constitution and can in fact aggravate illness if we're not minding our body with the type of exercise we're doing. I've seen many, many people at the gym, for example, furiously running on treadmills or intensely lifting weights, but there's still stress in the body. They're holding stress in their body. And they may be actually even holding on to weight because they're stressing their bodies by not exercising in a way that's supporting them. Yeah, this resonated with me. I'll use myself. I'll I'll throw myself in the ring as an example here because I've just had, well, first I want to say one thing I really liked about the book is how you present so many interesting ideas and healing modalities to explore. But one thing you you keep reminding people in the books, so I want to remind people now is that it's really important to find what works for, for you and that it's going to be completely different than from what works for your neighbor or your friend. I've been really drawn personally in the last year to ways of moving my body that are less intense and just more gentler physical activity. And it, I just, I, I'm curious if you, what, what you make of that, if like na- how, why naturally someone might gravitate towards that. Just give us a little bit more specific example of why somebody might need more vigorous exercise or someone might need gentler exercise and how that could help balance them. 
Sure. Yeah. And again, it depends on what I'm describing as somebody's unique constitution. I have a constitution that tends to crave movement and activity, but craving, and this is a very general concept, but applies to all aspects of cravings, whether it's for activity or relationship or food. Craving is a sign of an imbalance. A craving is reflecting of the body mind's attempt to restore balance with a craving. When we're in a state of balance, emotionally, mentally, physically, we don't have strong yens either way. So in my example, I had a strong craving to move. And that was imbalancing to me, the craving in itself, and the movement was further imbalancing. And I end up discovering, ironically, through an injury that I received while running, and running really intensely in a, in a way that was not healthy for me in retrospect, I discovered yoga. And yoga isn't something that I crave when I'm out of balance, but it's something that my constitution needs. So it depends on where we are in terms of our state of balance or not, whether what we're wanting to do is actually supporting it or not. It sounds like in your case, Whitney, that you had a real mindful awareness that, gee, I'm really wanting to do this gentler, more slow kind of exercise and it's feeling good, right? Yes. Yeah. There are some people who have constitutions that tend to want to do that kind of exercise, crave that kind of minding the body, but in fact, they need more movement. Hmm. So I don't know if I'm answering your question properly. It just depends on where we are. Yeah. There, there's a, I, I use, I've studied Chinese medicine and Ayurveda throughout my work. I don't go into depth in, in this in the book, but I describe how I've used these as, as un, uh, systems for understanding our unique constitution, because both of those systems see us as individually. And in those systems, they're, they're constitutions of people that tend to be more grounded, more earth energy. And those constitutions tend to crave slower, gentler exercise, when in fact, it may be more beneficial for them to, quote, mind their body in a way that involves more movement, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Well, we're here, you know, people, I, I just think it'll be something that my listeners are interested in. I'm thinking of, of food as well, because you had some really interesting perspectives on food. And I guess my question is, tell us why we might not be serving ourselves when it comes to food and multitasking. Oh, okay. That's another interesting question. I mean, they're, they're, you mean multitasking while we're working with food or eating food or preparing food? Well, I think while we're eating, you had some really interesting clarifying points about when and how we digest the best. And I feel like for our pace of life in modern society that I think people would really enjoy hearing your perspective on that. Sure, sure. Well, on the bottom line, simple truth about it is that multitasking does not work. I'm going to talk a little bit about multitasking and then I'll talk about it in relationship to food and digestion. The brain does not work optimally when we're doing more than one thing at a time, when we're focusing on more than one thing at a time. And I know many of us do it very well, myself included, but in fact, it dilutes the it dilutes the impact of whatever we're doing. Research has actually shown it to be affecting our brains, our memories, our 
physical health in deleterious ways over time. We think we can get it all done by doing more than one thing at a time, but it's just simply not true. I won't go into all the details of the research. It's detailed in that section in the book, but I will say when it comes to digestion, when it comes to eating and digestion, we need to be in a state of calm, of physiologic calm for the body to digest, for the body to absorb the food we're taking in, for the body to digest the food we're taking in. And the only way we're in a state of physiologic calm is if we're in a state of mental and emotional calm, as I spoke of earlier, which is, again, this term I'm using throughout the book called absolute health. And that place of peace, of stillness, of absolute calm for mind and body comes from simply being here now, being present in the moment with what we're eating, with what we're doing, whatever it is. So if I'm eating and only eating, I'm facilitating what's called the parasympathetic nervous system, which is necessary for digestion to occur. If I'm eating and even talking on the phone or checking my email or reading a text or doing anything else than just simply eating, it doesn't allow that parasympathetic nervous system to be turned on to allow digestion to occur, which is why many of modern modern cultures complaints are digestive Hmm. because we don't allow the digestive system to be on and off on and off on and off throughout the day in a natural fashion we interfere with its being on optimally when we're doing anything else than just eating and i will say this as an aside that why do we do that why do we multitask because we think we have to we think we have to but we're we're misinformed we are we're incorrect. We don't have to multitask. We can accomplish everything that we need to accomplish first by stopping to pause and be still and experience the peace in that very moment. When we think we have to multitask, when we think we have to do all sorts of things in a certain amount of time, where's that thinking coming from? It's usually fueled by some sort of fear or worry that, well, if we don't, this is not going to be okay. I have to take care of this issue with my kid. I have to take care of this issue with my business. I have to take care of such and such. But in fact, none of it's true. And again, this is returning to a key theme of the book that all that we ever need for whatever is going on in our lives, whether it's a health issue or a circumstance or a situation that's challenging us, is to stop and pause and be present in the moment. And through that experience of the moment, we find this place of stillness where we may be having thoughts and emotions that are active and worried, but when we sit down to be still, we bear witness to them and we're no longer run by them. We're no longer fueled to multitask or read the newspaper while we're eating or read a text while we're eating or talk on the phone while we're chopping onions, right? So it's all simply about being in the moment and stopping to pause and experience that moment. And that is not always so easy for all of us, including myself. I have to remind myself, you know, you have to stop and just breathe. Stop and close your eyes and watch what's going on internally rather than being run run by it. But again, food and multitasking doesn't work. Never, never works. Multitasking never works. <laughs> never works. That brought us back beautifully. And One thing that also came up a lot during your book is the idea and the reminder that it's all connected. So it makes sense that we're kind of weaving in and out of the 
the topics that we are, because I've been reminded by your book that everything's interconnected. You talk in the book about the concept of the guest house for inviting in emotions. Can you tell us about that topic? Yes, the guest house is a poem by the the Sufi mystic and poet Rumi. And interestingly enough, there's a little history to that poem, how it ended up in my book. I was having all sorts of anxiety about this book. I had this book in mind, but I had a bit of a deadline at one point in the book creation process. And I surrendered to that anxiety. I just surrendered to that emotion of worry. And I explain in the book many, many different tools for how to actually do that. And the next thing I knew was I was, this was in the middle of the night indeed, because that's a lot often when worry arises. The next thing I knew I was in front of my bookshelf and that book literally fell off my bookshelf and I opened it to that poem. And it is a poem, as you described, it's called The Guest House. And it's a poem that describes the notion it's really a metaphor for life. And it's a, it's a metaphor for life that says, if we can just allow all that we experience in into our lives, no matter how difficult it may feel, it is our way home to well-being. And if we can appreciate everything that enters into our lives, no matter how difficult it is, we can understand that is it is a gift, it is a blessing from somewhere to help us on our path to our ultimate healing. And I use this guest house metaphor when I describe the notion of healing from the inside out. That's a part of the book in which I discuss emotional healing and the links between emotions and bodily health and life circumstances. So that guest house was a poem that was a muse and a mentor for me and a metaphor and full of images that describe this notion of just being with what is allowing all of the visitors, and let me just explain again, I didn't get to the guest house notion of it. This is, we can allow all the visitors into this guest house, all that visits with us, whether it's pain or joy or light or darkness, sadness, grief, or worry. If we can allow all of these visitors in, this is our way to well-being. This is our way to being okay and to healing. Well, I think it's a, a beautiful poem and a beautiful analogy. So thanks for expounding on that. And I'll make sure we share the poem in some fashion so people can enjoy it. So you outline tons of tools for being with difficult feelings in your book, healing modalities that one might try. And again, we've talked about how everybody's journey is individual. So what might work for you might not work for me. I know my listeners love to learn and I always try to offer something on the little bit more practical side that they can, they can try. And your book is just chock full with this. And I am looking forward to rereading and actually trying out more of the exercises in the future. But one of the practices that I think people might be less familiar with is mirror work. And you outline a a range, you know, you don't assign one thing you talk about, which I know too, is not assigning good or bad to an emotion. So let's just say anger, however you want to interpret it, it might be something that people want to explore. So using anger as an example, because I think it's misunderstood. 
maybe tell us a little bit on your perspective of anger and then mirror work and mind body sensing are two tools that might be less familiar that I'd like you to just give a quick sense of how someone might be able to use those to explore anger more. Yeah. Anger is an emotion that often we are told to consider a bad or a negative emotion. And like you, I emphatically (laughs) say that there are no negative emotions. There are no bad emotions. All emotions, whatever we're feeling is absolutely normal and natural for us. What may be not so supportive is how we work with those emotions or how we don't work with those emotions. So anger is a very important emotion to honor. Many of us may have held anger that we're not even aware of because we're so cultured to not honor anger, especially women. Anger is often a protective cloak, a cloak that is hiding a feeling that's deeper below, below that cloak. It might be grief or worry, some sort of fear, but it's definitely an emotion that needs to be honored, heard, allowed. And once honored, heard, and allowed, we can find various ways to shift that anger, to heal that anger. Okay. So if we were going to explore something new and try maybe mirror work with anger, what is mirror work and how might that look for someone who wants to try something at home somewhere they feel comfortable? Sure. Yeah, sure. Mirror work is a technique I learned about from Louise Hay, who was a a contemporary spiritual teacher, the founder of Hay House Publisher, who wrote an iconic book earlier on in her career called You Can Heal Your Life. And she believed and experienced personally the power of emotions, emotional healing, and physical well-being. In fact, she healed herself of a, quote, terminal diagnosis through the power of thoughts and emotions, as well as some alternative and holistic therapies. She developed this technique called mirror work. And it involves literally looking at yourself in a mirror. I always suggest a handheld mirror because it's more intimate and easier to work with and talking aloud to the mirror. You can either use that process to talk out loud to yourself, or if it's, if there's a relationship or communication issue you're having with somebody, you can use this technique to imagine you're speaking to that person. So if we're going to work with anger and use mirror work as a tool This could be a tool to simply talk aloud to the mirror how you're feeling, everything that you're feeling. Again, this is a tool for being present, which I've highlighted before as a key theme of the book. Mirror work is one of the five absolute health tools I introduced throughout the book. And all of these tools are tools for being here now in the moment with what is. So using this mirror to talk to, I can say to the mirror everything I'm feeling. And that means being present moment to moment. Even if I'm feeling weird talking to the mirror, that's what's coming up. So I'll say, I'm feeling weird talking to the mirror. It's a way to access in a sort of stream of consciousness flow technique, whatever is coming up moment to moment. Okay. So if you were someone who was experiencing anger, and now we've went through this whole conversation about how we want to feel through the pain and not have it get lodged in the body. Is it fair to make the leap that doing something like this when you're having anger in the moment might help you just 
kind of catch and release for a better term, that anger. So you don't hold on to it. Do you mean, do you mean the mirror work or another technique? Well, I just mean in general. So if you're talking about, we talked a lot about how interrelated emotional and physical pain can be in the body. So now that some of my listeners have this awareness, let's say they, something goes unexpected in their day, something, you know, is a source of stress or trigger and they're feeling, they identify this feeling of anger and they want to try this mirror technique or maybe something else. Would this be an appropriate way to work through that feeling and feel like they're identifying it, being with it and kind of releasing it so they don't hold it on into their physical body? Yeah, there's, again, each and every one of us is completely unique. So how it's going to work for somebody is going to be different from how it's going to work for somebody else. Yes. That being said, it can very well be a way to move, to be present with that anger and for it to shift. And it's by being present with the emotion that it does shift. And it's only by being present with it that it shifts. We can't wheel our way out of it. We can't suppress it down because it remains held in the body. So yes, that can help. That may do that. Mindful meditation may do that. Breathing may do that. Movement may do that. Uh, taking a bath may do that. You know, there are many, many different ways to shift the emotional vibrations of our bodies. Mirror work is one of them. Thank you for clarifying that. I talk a lot about journaling too, and I know that that's something you mentioned. The other newer tool that maybe some of my listeners haven't been as exposed to is mind-body sensing. So can you give us a, uh, an idea of, in a similar situation, if we wanted to just try something on for size? That's kind of one of my takeaways of this book is like, just there's so many things out there to try that might help you feel better. And so if we wanted to try the mind-body sensing technique in this moment of experiencing anger, what would that look like? Mind-body sensing is also called somatic experiencing, somatic sensing. It literally means finding the feeling in the body, finding the feeling in the body. Every emotion is in the body as well as in the psyche. As I said earlier, in body and mind are ineffably and instantaneously linked. So this is a technique where we literally just sit and we can breathe gently and start to feel that emotion that's coming up. And then we drop down in our mind's eye into our bodies and we sense where are we feeling that emotion in our body. And often we'll feel a tightness, perhaps even a specific sensation and awkwardness, or maybe our attention just goes to a particular place in the body. Many of us hold anger around the jaw, upper shoulders and back, but somebody may feel it somewhere else. So the idea is, to become very sensorily connected to the physical body and notice when you're feeling that feeling, what's going on in my body. And then being attentive to that body part. And it's through that process. It's through the process. And I have to also mention, we must not be attached to getting rid of the emotion. It's about being present with the emotion that we shift our experience to it. Emotional healing isn't about getting rid of feelings. These exercises aren't about getting rid of feelings. It's about changing our relationship to them, changing our experience of them. So I am not angry, but maybe I was feeling angry. 
I am angry is different than I am feeling angry, right? Mm -hmm. Anger is not me. It's just an element that was part of me that may be part of me again. So again, the mind body sensing is a way to find the feeling in the body. And then through becoming very aware physically in the body, it can shift. In the process, many other thoughts and feelings may arise. And it's a process that's a continual recycling process. I may think, oh, well, I'm not getting rid of it. So that's associated with another emotion, maybe worry or annoyance. You continue to be aware, to bear witness. And this bearing witness is a very powerful process because bearing witness to what's going on emotionally is creating a separation from that emotion and our experience of it. So we bear witness to it. And then we say, where am I feeling it in the body? Many, many um, healing modalities are body or somatic sensory, somatically oriented modalities. Reiki, Alexander technique, craniosacral therapy, these are all based on the notion that the body holds memories, the body holds emotions, the body holds thoughts, the body holds traumas. And it's through focusing on the experience of the body that we can shift the experience of those mental and emotional vibrations. Did that make sense? It made absolute sense. (laughs) I'm loving it all. And it's going to give listeners a lot to reflect on and digest on. And I appreciate you. I know it's hard to, I I, I felt like I was cherry picking because there was such a wealth of tools. So I encourage people to read the book and have the full context of when and how, how to use any of the tools. And we're coming to the close, but I, I know that you, we covered a lot of ground. So I just wanted to give you a quick chance. Did anything else come up for you that you wanted to share? Well, I think I just like to, to leave listeners with this message. And that is that whatever's going on in your life, whatever you're feeling challenged by, the solutions arise, the solution or solutions arise, and not by trying to figure things out, not by trying to get things done, not by trying to get it all together, but by stopping to pause and experience these moments of peace that we find when we stop to pause and just be. And again, it's not always so easy to do that, but the book offers many, many tools to experience that place of stillness. I was a holistic doctor for many, many years who then developed a number of health issues who never understood this notion of being present. And it wasn't until I started to understand this notion of just being that my mind and my body started to come together and work together rather than in opposition with one another. When I learned how to surrender to my body and stop doing what I thought I should be doing. When I learned that should is a word that we really need to delete from our vocabularies, I started to come to understand how healing could happen, how ease could happen, how everything that we need in our lives, no matter how busy our lives may feel, can actually come easily without effort. Thank you. That's a, a really beautiful message to end with. And I always close by asking each guest, What's one question women should be asking themselves more? That's a great question. I think it comes back to what are we needing? What am I needing to feel well in this moment right now? And make sure that answer to that question is free of judgment and free of shoulds. What do I need right now? What do I want right now? What is 
what do I need to feed me? Because I can't feed anybody else unless I feed me first. And no matter how unrealistic it may seem to just go to that place of creative imagination, what do I need to feed me first? What do I need to feel well? Even if it's to go to Hawaii and be on a beach and no matter how unrealistic it sounds in terms of one's life circumstances, what do I need right now to feed me? Beautiful. Thank you. I know that people will want to follow you. Absolutely read the book and we'll make sure to have all the details in the show notes, but tell us where we can find you and continue to learn from you. Thank you, Whitney. Uh, Yeah, people can find me on my website, which is www.transformationalmedicine.org. There are a lot of tools and resources for exploration there. And I'm on social media as well. And those links are on my website. Wonderful. This was a joy. Thank you for being with me today on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a joy for me as well, too, Whitney. Thank you. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you're looking for more, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at at Whitney Woman. And if you enjoyed the show, I invite you to support me by leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Hope you have an inspired day.